Welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. With well over a half million lives lost to the pandemic so far, grieving may look different under lockdown, but it has no off switch. Today on Tricycle Talks, Samit Kumar, a clinical psychologist, grief counselor, and author, joins us with my friend and co-host, Sharon Salzberg, for a conversation about grief, how we've come to redefine it during this time of social distancing, and the importance of staying present to it. Buddhist teachings, breathing techniques, and meditation, Kumar tells us, have shown him how to hold great pain and make it bearable for himself and those he counsels. Semi Kumar, thank you for joining us. I'm happy to be here. I'm here with Sharon Salzberg, who has graciously agreed to be my steady co-host. Sharon, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well, thank you. So here we all are, Miami, Massachusetts, and New York. Samit, I was looking at the titles of your books. We've got Grieving Mindfully, The Mindful Path Through Worry and Rumination, and Mindfulness for Prolonged Grief, and I thought, wow, he came prepared for the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, um, one would think, right? Sharon follows you on Twitter, and we were talking about you, and we thought, wow, let's talk to somebody whose life has to have changed, continuing going to work and working with adults with cancer, their caregivers, their families. What's that like right now? Um, the pandemic, like all things trauma, has been an amplifier for everything that was there before. And we see this in every level of assessment, be it society, you know, in terms of the social problems that we have, that we've been facing, the economic problems that we've been facing, interpersonal, familial, uh, substance abuse, addictions, mental health, you name it, everything's been amplified by the pandemic. And along with that, it's important to point out Although for too many people, it doesn't feel like it, it has also amplified some of the things that are good about how we treat each other and how we get along with each other. In some ways, it's amplified things to the point that they can no longer be ignored. And it's propelled a lot of us, I think, into a field of action that is way outside of what our comfort zones were in 2019, say. So it has been a challenge in healthcare. My hospital was inundated from May to August was when we had our wave of COVID. And in that time, most hospital personnel, most healthcare personnel were asked to stay away because the risk of infection was so significant. And really, we had to convert every single bed that we could, except for oncology and labor and delivery, to care for COVID patients. And what that also involved was rotating nurses who had not signed up to work in intensive care units to become intensive care unit nurses. And the challenges were significant. And I think the ripples of every hospital, every city, state, every community that has had these COVID waves, the effects of these will ripple out for months and probably for years in terms of the toll it's taken on people. Not just healthcare personnel, obviously, but also patients and their families. You know, I have a sister-in-law who's a nurse, and she said they turned even the gift shops and storage rooms into places to put beds. Yes. And then the trauma patients were treated out in the parking lot in tents. Yes. I imagine that takes such a toll. I know you're also a Buddhist practitioner. How have you been coping yourself? I mean, you're used to working with people who are grieving, yet you are also grieving. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing this kind of work for over 20 years, and almost immediately in training, 
I gravitated towards end-of-life care, palliative care, and grief. You know, palliative care is not really a bread and butter staple of psychologists. It's not kind of the thing that psychologists are known to do. So I kind of had to carve my own niche in certain ways. And this was 1995 is when I started graduate school. So I don't like to admit it, but it was a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) But what wound up happening with the pandemic, it really brought to mind what I experienced in training in the 90s, which is before I started seeing patients, one of the first things I did that summer is I went to India. Dalai Lama was giving a Kala Chakra empowerment in Spiti Valley. And I thought, I'm getting some of the best training on the planet in mental health care. Maybe I should pay attention to this. And, you know, this wasn't really my first foray into Buddhist teachings and practices, but it was my first trip into the Himalayas. So I kind of came back charged with this sense of, um, of obligation, really, to synthesize my clinical work with my Buddhist practice. And what really sealed the deal for me is, uh, for those of you who've been to Spiti Valley, it's very remote. It's very hard to get to, and it's very dangerous. <laughs> Little hairpin turns everywhere through the mountains in India. Some of these passes are over 15,000 feet high. One-lane roads that you're sharing, two-way traffic, much of it trucks and buses, blind curves, things like that. So at the end of the 10-day period, the Dalai Lama had turned to the corner where all the foreigners were, and uh, he said, thank you for coming here. The conditions have been really rough. And it's been very challenging to be here without plumbing or electricity and dust storms and it's freezing cold at night and it's really hot in the daytime. But if you don't do something different with your life from here on out, you'll have wasted your time to come. You'll have wasted the trip to come here. And I felt like I'd been plugged into an electric socket when I heard that. For all the years that I've been kind of dabbling with meditation practice, That was the moment where I made the commitment to make it a daily practice and to really bring that to heart. And so my clinical work has always been fused with a daily meditation practice. And the last trip I took before the pandemic set in was to Chicago to get some teachings on the six yogas of Naropa and to do this amazing breath work and integrate that into my daily practice. And, you know, the flight back from that, it was the last flight I took there was masking going on and it was surreal. You know, it was early March, 2020. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had a stash of antiseptic antiviral wipes with me that I had taken just in case I'm hearing about this virus coming on. And I used them on my seat and all my passengers were like, oh my God, you have wipes? Can I have some of those? (laughs) You know, the harbinger of things to come. Yeah, Purell became a, a hot commodity. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, it started for me with, these six yogas of Naropa, this Tumo practice, and just really accelerating my breath work. And it was very timely. That's been my grounding practice throughout the past year, twice a day doing those practices in addition to the sadhanas and awareness of the breath. Do you also work with your colleagues? I mean, they're so stressed out. You're a psychologist, a grief counselor. Yeah. Do they come to you? Yes. The interesting thing about cancer is that it affects everybody. So oftentimes the people I work with will have a diagnosis or their loved ones will have a diagnosis. And we've worked side by side in many instances at the bedside and they'll transition to being a patient, which it's an honor. It's a privilege to do that. But I saw kind of um, a greater need with COVID and I had coincidentally signed up for trauma therapy certification. (laughs) December, 2019, I had registered for this trauma course that was going to be in mid-March. So when, as soon as we shut down, 
was the trauma course, which immediately switched to online training. And just the fortuitous timing of it all was not to be ignored. So one thing that I did start to present to my nursing colleagues was um, that I would check in with them via teleconference um, at their nursing huddle and was able to do this for about a month. So 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. at nursing huddle before the nurses were going into the COVID units. They're all suited up and I would do a very brief breath awareness exercise with them because the findings I had found from the trauma literature really overlapped with these very ancient Buddhist practices that awareness of the body, awareness of the breath, and awareness of the breath in the body is extremely difficult to maintain in the setting of trauma, acute or chronic, post-traumatic stress or immediate trauma, immediate stress. Right. And so the challenge is to bring the sense of embodiedness into our encounter with trauma. And the hope is that that will limit the damage that it will do afterwards. Sharon, you've dealt with people who have experienced trauma too. How is that different when giving meditation instruction or leading a meditation with people who have experienced trauma? Well, somebody said to me some years ago in a sort of chastising way about the system, she said, there's always trauma in the room. You just have to assume that. So I would hardly think any population is exempt. If you're feeling the acute disorientation from trauma, there are ways you would want to practice meditation that I think are the right ones. This holds true for everybody, and it's not easy to believe, but one way of putting it is that the goal of mindful awareness is a kind of balanced awareness, and balance looks different all the time. Sometimes it looks different for any one of us day to day. Did you get any sleep last night, or how much energy do you have? And it looks different between us. So for some people, that balance is going to be achieved by coming closer to our experience. You know, we're so withdrawn, we're so back, we're so distant. Mm -hmm. And for some people, we're enmeshed, we're overwhelmed, we're completely in it. So the balance is going to be achieved by moving away, you know, having some space, having some sense of being centered. And I think one of the hardest things for people to accept is that they're doing it okay. They're doing it correctly, even if it doesn't look like their image of someone in a pretzel-like pose with eyes closed for an hour and a half, not a thought in their head. You know, it's fine. It's absolutely fine. And so I think flexibility and meeting the moment, meeting the person is the most important thing. And it's true to the teachings. It's what they're about. It's about that kind of balance. I so much wanted to introduce you to Samit, who's a friend. And if you're lucky, you'll get to his house for a meal someday yeah. in Florida, someday when we're traveling again, in part because I admire his work a lot and also because I was following him on Twitter. Right. I mean, he was so honest about things he was going through, things he was seeing. And so much of the time, these sort of traumatic events are also happening with a kind of secrecy or they're happening apart from the normal flow of life for a lot of people. I know life is life, but we're in an extraordinary place right now. And, you know, if you're counseling people or helping them through the process of grief, typically we think of people being together physically, and we've had to make do with, say, Zoom. And it feels so different. I mean, I had a friend who passed away in January, and I could see her once. Her husband could see her four hours a day. She had cancer. And it's different. And so he's not going the Zoom route. So there's this empty kind of sort of surreal quality to all of it. 
so many people have experienced this in the last year. How are you dealing with family members who can't even see their loved ones? That has been the most challenging part of it for so many of us, even as healthcare providers that I've long observed, and I've shared this with patients and family members, that dying is not a medical process, it's a spiritual process. The shutting down of the body is something our bodies do very well, shockingly well sometimes, sometimes not so well. But it's the spiritual aspect of it. I believe it's a sacred space and it's a privilege and it's an honor and there's an intensity to being able to share that sacred space with somebody. And that's been taken away. There's an intimacy and a tenderness that cannot be conveyed online and it's irreplaceable. It is irreplaceable. So what we're dealing with is something that we haven't really seen before is a sudden loss in a chronic setting. You know, not in the way that dying from a chronic illness is, but in many instances, what's happened is that a loved one has been rushed off in an ambulance somewhere or dropped off in an emergency room with such a sense of urgency because they can't breathe. And oftentimes there isn't a chance to say, you know, this might be the last time I hold you. This may be the last time that you hear my voice, you know, without these drugs, very powerful drugs being put into your system. This might be the last time I smell you. And, you know, without all of those physical contact measures, I think for a lot of people, this feels like a sudden loss. I don't know how anybody can really be prepared for this. This is what I think some of our Buddhist practices can really help with is that, you know, there is no off switch for this kind of pain. We don't do these practices of being grounded, of balanced awareness, of meditation. We don't do these to turn it all off. We do it because it's so hard to endure and it's so hard to hold this kind of pain that every available tool in the toolkit that's healthy should be on the table. And that even being an excellent meditator, even being an excellent practitioner, it may not turn anything off that we would like to turn off sometimes. The pain has a vastness and a mind of its own. And I think there is this additional challenge that these goodbyes were never really quite what we would want them to be. And I have to also bring my nursing colleagues into this is that they are the ones who have borne witness to all of these, you know, holding these iPads or their own phones in some instances, their own personal phones to FaceTime with. They've been holding this sacred space literally in their hands. Sharon was mentioning that just a few hours ago when we spoke briefly about the nurses who are there in our stead and to whom we're deeply grateful. Um, But I was thinking about what Sharon said about trauma, and sometimes it makes sense to come closer to it, sometimes not. It depends on the person. And I've been talking to a friend, it was his wife, and he said, it's not getting better, but in fact, it's been five weeks. So of course it isn't, but it occurred to me what he's experiencing. I've experienced it, most of us have experienced it, how time becomes attenuated. It feels like it's going on forever. A day is not just a day. When you're spending a day in grief, it can be an eternity. And he's not a Buddhist. He doesn't have a meditation practice. Honestly, this is what a lot of people are going through right now on a mass scale, if you consider over a half million have died in our country. How do you counsel people who don't have a practice? You know, I think the most effective thing, just what Sharon said, you have to meet people where they are. And many instances, the pain is so intense that it's very difficult for them to share it with people. 
And so providing a space for them to express pain. And oftentimes what it is also is normalizing the course. I mean, five weeks is nothing, but it feels like it's been forever, but objectively it's nothing. Right. There's certain conditions. Of course, bliss is one of those conditions, but also grief is as well. It seems to exist outside of time. It has its own kind of calendar outside of linear time. And I think that's what's most disorienting for people is this assumption that, you know, X amount of time has gone by, I should be feeling this way or that way and not the way I'm feeling. And so a lot of bringing mindfulness practice or bringing other meditation practices into the session, into the space of grief, it's really about you as the one bearing witness, me as the therapist bearing witness to pain, being with my breath and being able to hold this vast space to endure and hold vast pain. And also being able to orient people that as miserable as this is, these stories go back hundreds, thousands of years. Nobody is exempt from this. None of us are exempt from this fate. You didn't do anything wrong to be suffering this kind of pain. This is part of the full human experience. You know, this is you know, samsara, if that makes sense. This is the cornerstone of samsara. Yeah, thinking something went wrong is just all the more painful. It's just adding to it. Sharon, I was thinking about what Samit was saying, and it sounds just so much like practice, being with what is. And it's not the easiest thing, but in a sense, we practice precisely to be able to be with whatever arises. Yeah, I mean, I think we do. And what Samit is describing, it's it's almost like you're creating a space for the other person who may not be able to in that moment, create quite that space. It's like you are the vehicle for that possibility. And it doesn't have to be in words. And sometimes I think it's worst when it's in words. Then it's like advice. Like, there's a bigger picture. There's a silver lining. (laughs) That's the worst, right? That is the worst. Yeah, Yeah, I've heard it. Yeah. It's intriguing, Samit, that you talk about the breath in the midst of a pandemic where not being able to breathe is kind of the hallmark. You sort of reminded me in talking about just bearing witness of this time when I was asking a Tibetan teacher for some advice about trying to help a friend who was in, at the time, tremendous psychological distress. And the teacher, Sokni Rinpoche, he gave me some advice, which is very hard to understand because it's very nuanced, but he basically said, stop trying. He said, just be there with him. And it was so interesting because I would see, he was in a psychiatric hospital at the time, and I would see sitting in his room with him as people came to visit. So that was great. But sometimes, you know, the message was, take some rosehip drops and you'll be better in two weeks or something, (laughs) you know. And I could feel the internal process my friend was going through. The way he was experiencing that was like pressure. Like, what if I don't? Will you still love me? What if I don't get better? And so I could see the sensibility of what my teacher had said in that, just be there. To the best of your ability, create that space of openness, which is also listening, and see what emerges. One of the difficulties caregivers often have is falling into that savior role. Like, I'm going to be the one who's going to fix it. Part of what I've seen in the past is that people in that role, first responders or medical personnel, 
do feel a kind of stigma about asking for help themselves because they're supposed to be the ones. And I'm hoping and praying that in this you know, terrible set of conditions that that at least to some degree has fallen away. I hope so. One of the things I did start to do was offer Tuesdays at noon uh, free mindfulness sessions. And it lasts about a half hour because it's lunch and people want to eat also. So uh-huh. just a very quick intro in a 20-minute sitting practice every week. It started about, I think I started those in July. I'm not sure. That's the other thing James and I were talking about earlier is because it's so strange. Like every day is kind of the same, right. you know, and right. it's all sort of blurry and I'm not traveling anywhere. So I don't have those right. markers right. of change, you know. So it's like it's been almost a year, really. I want to say something about what Sharon said that Sokin Rinpoche advised. It's just be there because the temptation with someone who is quite ill is to figure out what you should say, what the right thing to say is, what the right thing to do is, rather than just be there, which doesn't come naturally. So I think that's incredible advice. But the point right now for many of us is that we can't be there. So what do we do instead? The best we can really the best we can. And it's different for different people. You know, I think early on there was, we have to have these Zoom sessions or FaceTime or do some sort of video chats with everybody. And for me personally, after doing telehealth all day, the last thing I wanted to do was stare at another screen. (laughs) So that kind of fell away. And, you know, texting and talking on the phone, it's really just doing the best we can. This is uncharted territory. And we kind of are setting the course as we go along. We're kind of making it up as we go along. I think there's something to be said that as disconnected and separated that we've been from each other you know, around the country, if we're not in the same place or in the same pod, so to speak, I think there's a sense that we can try and cultivate a sense of connection in different ways. And there's financial limitations to how much some of us can do. And some of these technologies are great if you have internet speeds and if you have technology to do it. And if your phone breaks and it can't afford to replace it, you're not going to be able to do some of this stuff. I think we have to start rethinking what are the basic essentials in the 21st century in society if we can't walk over and see somebody or knock on their door and see them. How are kids going to school? A lot of kids are missing out now. That's quite alarming. So I'd like to be able to tell you that we found a way around it. We found a workaround. But I think we're going to be dealing with the consequences for years to come. You mean the consequences of the trauma? Of the trauma and of not being able to be in intimate contact with people. You know, intimate in the sense of physical proximity, of of a sense of closeness and a sense of really shared community space. Yeah, I I think people are feeling it. Uh, They really are. I am certainly. Well, think of me. I had a pot of one, and he went on intensive retreat. That's Joseph. <laughs> That's Joseph Goldstein for our listeners. So it's fine. I'm fine, and I am ever grateful for the tools that I have. I'm, I'm just mostly uh, amused at the thought that my one pod person went into intensive I, retreat. I got worried when I heard that. You're so sweet. I got Sharon a shortcake, and I got Joseph a cheesecake to lift their spirits. <laughs> it was very nice, very, very nice of you. But I, like Samit, I would say, you know, I've had years of preparation in a way, which not, of course, everyone has. I think Samit's pointing to not only the revelation of the trauma, but the inequities that are 
so much highlighted in this situation. I'm sure it is happening everywhere. Maybe I painted too nasty a picture of things, but yeah, there is a lot of connection happening and there is a lot of support, but I think there's also a lot of inequity in who's able to to give and to receive those things. And part of my perception is perhaps clouded. I work for a very large public hospital. So a lot of our population is uninsured. We're the safety net. And we do a very good job of being a safety net, but we also get exposed to these stories of people who are disconnected on the periphery of society in many instances. Semi, do you go into the hospital still or has it been remote? So um, during the peak, we were completely remote and uh, our peak started to dissipate in about August. And we started transitioning back into in-person, face-to-face. Now I see people who are hospitalized and I also see people in my office And the vast, I would say, upwards of 95% of my patients still do not want to come in. They're undergoing cancer treatment or their loved ones have been or are undergoing cancer treatment. And so they really don't want to be making it into the hospital. And for the other chunk of the work I do is at the bedside. And I've been able to start going into the bedside. And we're actually going to start going in a little bit more. It's been quite difficult because of this virus, there have been significant visitor restrictions. So family members aren't allowed to be with patients. So in some ways, you know, we have become, when I say we, I mean myself and my colleague, the psychologists that work at the cancer center, we have become their sort of non-medical, but healthcare professionals who they can find a safe sense of belonging emotionally with everything that's been going on. So you're a caregiver. How do you care for yourself through all of this? Is it your practice primarily? Yes, absolutely. My day begins with a sadhana practice and it ends with a sadhana practice. And I try to exercise. Um, I'm in South Florida, so we don't have to deal with ice and snow. I try to exercise six days a week, a minimum of 20 minutes. Sharon's alluded to me cooking, so (laughs) that's also been a part of my stress management. Yeah, Sharon said you're a good cook. (laughs) I try. My sister is really the gifted chef. She has a place in North Carolina, a restaurant in North Carolina. She's the cook in the family. (laughs) But, you know, it's like Sharon said, if you don't know what else to do, try and take care of somebody else. And food is a really good way to do that. Right. So, I mean, we typically think of the caregiver role as very narrowly defined, people in the medical profession more specifically, but Isn't it so that we're all at some point or another caregivers? Absolutely. This is something that I feel very strongly about is that not only are we all caregivers, we're all exquisitely trained caregivers from our experiences in life. And you see this kind of broken down in a hospital setting often when somebody's in the hospital room for a long time. Oftentimes the people who are bringing the food trays in are offering more comfort and support than people like me or the housekeeping staff. They get to know our patients extremely well. And I think everybody who's worked in a hospital setting feels a sense of debt and gratitude towards housekeeping for keeping the place clean and safe. I hope we don't take them for granted anymore. But even outside of the hospital setting, when we start to think that caregiving is something that we need to leave to the experts, what we do is we start creating the sense of distance of our own potential for compassion right? Like maybe somebody else will call, maybe somebody else will step up. I don't really know what to do. And really what caregiving is, is I think it's an invitation to not just bring our expertise, but to bring our not knowing, just our presence. I don't know what to say is an okay thing to say. I don't know what to do 
I don't know how to help you. It's okay to say those things as long as you're in dialogue with somebody who needs to be cared for. It has a lot more to do with feeling a sense of openness rather than a sense of competence. We learn as we go. But compassion, ultimately, it, it is a very broad umbrella. And it's something that we're all capable of. And I think that's something that is so wonderful about these spiritual practices is that it reminds us of that, that there is no sort of like checklist, like, you know, you have to be a certain height or weight, or you have to have a certain color of eyes to be your caregiver. No, just as suffering is something that happens to everybody, everybody can also be a caregiver. You know, you mentioned the person who brings in the tray of food. It never occurred to me that that could be such a heroic act, really, especially during the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. And with that, we'll take a short break and we'll be right back. Tricycle Talks is brought to you by Tricycle, the Buddhist Review, a print and digital magazine dedicated to making Buddhist teachings and practices broadly available. New subscribers can receive a four-week free trial by visiting tricycle.org slash subscribe. A free trial includes... Four new digital magazine issues a year, plus our entire 30-year archive. Access to daily web-exclusive content, more than 500 video Dharma talks, and special discounts on Tricycle online courses. Go to tricycle.org slash subscribe to sign up for a free trial today. Please note that the free trial applies to yearly digital subscriptions option only. Now, Let's return to James Shaheen in conversation with Sharon Salzberg and Samit Kumar. Sharon, I'm wondering how teaching is for you, because certainly I've attended your teachings online. What does it feel like now after a year of teaching online? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I was going to put in a plug for technology because even though we had a lot of technical difficulties in the beginning of this podcast, it's been kind of amazing too. Even though it has exposed inequities, it's also increased access for those people for whom it's available. And, you know, I would read the chats on Zoom and I, I see over and over again. I couldn't come to retreats anyway because now my mother's sick and I'm taking care of her or I've got a kid or I have no money or something like that. And this is so meaningful that I can actually have that experience and it's here. And you can have infinite people online often and it's not going to cost anything. So why not just open it up and make it available for anybody who needs it? And given the economic situation for many, I think that's been really important. So I quite like teaching online. I love the beginning when I have people write in the chat, where are you tuning in from? And I read like Dubai and Moscow and Venezuela. And I think, really? <laughs> like, and then people sometimes write, I have to go to sleep now. It's two in the morning. I'll listen to the recording for the rest. And I've really been moved by it, and I'm sure I will continue it. I miss people, and I just think it'll be odd. You know, I look at old photos, and I think, why are they standing so close <laughs> together? Or, you know, where's the mask? Right. You both have mentioned the long-term effects of this crisis. And I think, especially when you're by yourself or have a limited set of contacts, 
you may not have the time to grieve. That's not really true, but it's easy to sidestep it all together. So I was thinking about that because we've got an entire world in lockdown, essentially, and there's going to be this release at some point. I wonder how that plays out. You say there will be long-term effects. What would those be, and what does it mean that probably many of us haven't put aside time to really grieve? I mean, after all, you define grief in your book as not just loss of loved ones, but also loss of a routine or loss of a predictable life, which has been so disruptive. I think it's going to take time to figure out what that's going to be. I think there's definitely going to be this hedonic pull, you know, the roaring 20s started after the flu pandemic. And here we are in the 20s again. And uh, I think there is going to be this kind of explosion of people wanting to connect. There's definitely that risk of intoxication and addictions that may result from that. And also this suppressed pain people leaving abusive environments or maybe getting into abusive environments. I think one of the things that has really been a shining example of hope is how engaged Buddhist practice has become with the community, how much more accessible it's been. There's so many people who don't have access to be able to take the resources and go to New Mexico or go to India, for instance, and and hear the Dalai Lama teaching. And they'll, wow, he's on Facebook on Friday night, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I have Facebook. I can do that. So it's really been incredible how engaged we've been able to become with people. My hope is, is that as much assistance we've been able to provide to people who are suffering, we'll be able to kind of guide the conversation on what do we do now that this thing is behind us or that we know how to deal with it and we can get on with whatever our new normal lives are going to be, that they'll be informed by, by practice, by compassion, by connection. I think all of these things are just drops in the bucket. They help. And like I said before, there's no off switch. There's no fix that you do this and everything's going to be just fine. But in in a lot of ways, it's here's a tool. We find it helpful. It might not turn the pain off, but it makes it feel safe to hold. You know, we have to be there for the long haul because people will try what doesn't work and then they'll kind of wind up coming back to what does. It's staying with that commitment that, you know, these tools aren't going anywhere, you know. One thing that I was so grateful for when we went into lockdown, at least I knew what to do. I had a cushion. So I can't emphasize enough how lucky I felt. So, I mean, how is it that you came to this work? I mean, it's not easy work, definitely, but I imagine it's fulfilling. Did you have a religious upbringing at all? Did you have a pension for this for some reason or another? How did that happen? Well, um, my mother lost her parents um, in the partition of India and Pakistan in 1947. She was around 10 years old at the time, and she witnessed them being murdered in front of her. And it generated a scar, and it's a story that I grew up with. And how she found a way to carry on with that is through bhakti yoga. She was a very religious Hindu woman, and she raised us not to be very religious, but to be very spiritual. You know, I was born in India and there was a guy down the street who had been a sadhu for many years and he had settled down to be with his daughter and settle at home. And so we would visit his house and he always seemed to be kind of a different species of human to my three, four, five-year-old kid eyes. He was a mystical being and she always kind of left there with a smile on her face. So there was something to it. And when we moved to the U.S., she always kind of had the idea that we should have these teachers around. And some of them were charlatans, but they had good things to say too. 
So I kind of always grew up with this idea that these spiritual practices can hold great pain and they can make the pain bearable. And when I was in college, I was in Santa Cruz and there were still at that time echoes of the time that Ramdas had been there. He actually came through and spoke on the campus a couple of times and I dropped everything and went to his lecture with my beat up copy of Be Here Now, had him sign it. And he was so instrumental in end of life care, him and Stephen Levine in the late 60s and 70s. And I was inhaling this material. I couldn't get enough of it. And when I got into graduate school to be a psychologist, I had made the commitment to myself that I was going to try to work with people who are going through physical illness, not as a career, but just as a reality check because of these Buddhist teachings that the charnel ground practices are right there with the mindfulness practices. They're the next step after the body scan. And so to cultivate a sense of charnel ground meditations is part of my training. And within about three months of rotating at a cancer center, I couldn't imagine doing anything else with my life. And fortunately, I had a great supervisor who kind of sat me down and was like, you know, Samit, I think you need to think about your career here. People on their deathbeds are opening up to you in very special ways that you need to pay attention to that. And I think part of it was the meditation practice, the sense of maybe I can open that door. And, you know, for people who don't have a meditation practice, to be around a meditation practice is the next best thing. So it's just being present. And it was the hardest training experience. It was the hardest year that I've had professionally. It was very challenging, a lot of tears, a lot of frustrations. And yet I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And that was over 20 years ago. Yeah, sort of like what Sharon said about just being there and witnessing that. Yeah, I found myself very quickly thinking, you know, why would I do anything else with my life? And so, you know, doors kept opening to keep me in the field. Well, Sharon, I know all about how you became a teacher. I've read all your books. But I sometimes wonder, what would you have done had you not been a teacher? Might you have been in the caring professions, which you kind of are in a certain way? I kind of am. Well, I was 21 when Deepama, my own teacher, told me to teach. Mm -hmm. I guess when I was a child, I would have responded that I wanted to be a writer. Check. Which I have managed to do as well. It's, I don't know, it's just unthinkable. I have one more question. You're both there for people in this way of just being there, which is not always easy to see this kind of suffering. How can we be there and at the same time not get so absorbed into it that we lose our own ground? Well, I'll be honest, sometimes I do lose my own ground. And it's trusting the process that I'll find it again. Sometimes it involves me kind of diving back into some Buddhist teachings. There's a wonderful set of what are called the aspiration prayers of Kuntu Zangpo or Samantabhadra. And Samantabhadra is the primordial Buddha, universal goodness. They're read at the new year. They're also read on the occasion of someone's death. And they're derived from the Avatamsaka Sutra. I just find them to be just magical verses of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas on every atom of existence and just generating the wish to cultivate that awareness. With the new year just having recently happened, a lot of aspiration prayers of Samantabhadra has been extremely helpful for me to read, and that works for me. But I think part of groundedness at the bedside for me is knowing that I'm going to be losing it at some point. I'm going to be losing my tether to the sense of stability and groundedness. But sometimes to meet people where they are, they are completely ungrounded, and that's part of the process. 
And then just finding the breath again and coming back to it. Not being so attached to the ground is it's sometimes not a bad idea. I would really want to echo that because I just did an interview today with some magazine, not tricycle, not oh, spiritual. Oh, no. <laughs> it was about golf, which I don't play. But one of the questions was, how do you stay mindful, like basically all the time, so you can bring that quality into your game? So I said what I say in every context, no matter who's asking, that's not going to happen. You're not going to stay mindful. You will not be perfectly composed. The whole trick, which is like meditation 101, is being able to begin again. You're going to completely lose it. You're going to totally forget. And then you're going to be able to remember and you're going to be able to start over. And and I think that is really crucial. There are other elements in this time, even though, you know, we can joke about my being alone and please nobody send me more food but fine <laughs> um, James was really sweet <laughs> to do that but it's knowing I'm not alone I have a tremendous sense of community and support and I think that is very important in my being able to come back to a place of being centered because I really believe fundamentally none of us is alone and I can touch in on that knowledge one of my favorite sayings, as I'm sure you know, is we feel what we feel. When I think about how judgmental I was and how ashamed I was in the beginning of introspection, really, for me at the age of 18 and meditation, and now it's like we feel what we feel. How we approach it and how we relate to it and how kind we are toward ourselves and how present we can be with it is the whole point. And so I'm very grateful for that. I mean, my life was totally disrupted as well, but it's a lot of uncharted territory for a lot of people. And it's not exactly going back because it won't be the same. It'll be something else. It's really good to hear you say that because often I forget to be kind with myself or forgiving when I lose it, you know. Um, so I hear that from both of you. And this sort of groundlessness that we're living in now, I guess that has to be okay too. It's a pretty fundamental Buddhist understanding of things. Sharon, what practice is most useful to you right now? I find that I'm doing a lot of simple awareness of my breath, which is the first thing I learned 50 years ago. So I'm kind of back to fundamentals. And I'm actually doing quite a lot of loving-kindness practice. As you know, my formal daily sitting, because I do sit every day, would be a sort of mindfulness or open awareness practice. And I was doing loving-kindness informally, like on airplanes and walking down the streets of New York and waiting in someone's waiting room and all that's gone, you know? So I'm actually doing it much more in a formal, dedicated way. I'm also finding that, you know, sometimes we divide practice between that formal, dedicated period of however long you sit. It doesn't have to be sitting, but let's say sit each day. And then what we call short moments many times, we're just kind of sprinkling mindfulness or loving kindness into some activity. You're trying to drink that cup of tea mindfully or silently do some loving kindness to the person you're looking at on Zoom. And I find I'm doing a tremendous amount of that these days. I've also found that I made a resolve to be kinder in these times. And one of the ways that manifests is I reread my emails before I send them. And it's interesting because I see a sentence or something and I think, that would be open to misinterpretation. Maybe I'll take that out. Or maybe there's another way of saying that. And I think it's a great opportunity 
to really see your whole life as something that you're crafting according to those values. Yeah, I'll just say what I do is really influenced by you, Sharon, when I'm on a Zoom call and I have Zoom fatigue because I'm on so many Zoom calls like we all are. And I started doing meta or loving kindness practice toward the people on the Zoom call. And it really gave dimensionality to people and what they were saying and what I was saying just happened. I didn't really plan it, but it kind of kicked in. So those years of practice have held me in good stead. I'd just like to thank you both. It was really wonderful to be with you. Samit Kumar, thank you so much for your wonderful work. Thank you. And it was great seeing you as always, Sharon. Thank you. You've been listening to Sharon Salzberg and Samit Kumar, a clinical psychologist and grief counselor who specializes in end-of-life care. I can hardly believe it, but Tricycle is turning 30 this year. Come celebrate our 30th anniversary by tuning in to a series of conversations, teachings, and guided meditations with esteemed guests, including His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama on tricycle.org 30. That's tricycle.org 30. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Write us at feedback at tricycle.org. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest, Karen Jensen, and Julia Hirsch, with help from Amanda Lim Patton. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening. <laughs>